Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The satanically mandated two guests in two segments today. Lee Claire LaBerge will give us a history of Western political economy from a feline perspective. And Michael Zweig talks about his new primer on how capitalism works and what that means for how to fight it. I love cats, both generally as a species and specifically the two I share my living quarters with. But I never knew how prominently they figure in the history of culture and political economy until I read my first guest book. Lee Claire LaBerge, a professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, part of the City University of New York, is just out with Marks for Cats, a radical bestiary, published by Duke University Press. It's a delightful yet serious book, textually and visually, that takes us through 12 centuries of the human-feline relationship, from housecat to lion. It's also a plea for us to rethink the human-animal relationship generally, although I'm not sure how well-suited cats, sadistic carnivores par excellence, are as a model. Lee Claire LaBerge. Your erudition on All Matters Cat is really impressive. How did you acquire all this knowledge? How did the project come to be? It was one of the few books I've written that almost started as a prompt or even somewhat of a joke uh, that became more and more real in the writing. I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. I write a lot about art, and I get artists quite often asking me to help them refine their use of critical theoretical terms, particularly political economy. And so I made a series of instructional videos called Marks for Cats, where I explain basic concepts in Marxism, commodity, alienated labor, finance, capital, so on and so forth, to a group of cats. And uh, these videos were very popular as pedagogical tools. And a press, an art press, approached me and asked me, is there any way you could turn these videos about the relationship of Marxism to cats into a book? And I really had never thought to do it at all. The pandemic was setting in, so I found myself in a very constrained place, sitting at home. And I started researching some basic feline economic terms I knew, things that your listeners might be familiar with, wildcat banking, uh, wildcat strike, sabo tabby. Dead cat bounce made it in, too. Dead cat bounce. That's another much more contemporary financial term. But this sort of revealed itself to me as a historical arc that you could tell the story of the consolidation of European feudal states and out of that, the rise of capitalist states and then different moments of accumulation within capital, all through images and references to cats, both in and out of political economy. And the more I wrote, the joke sort of ceased to be a joke, uh, it became more real. Yeah, actually, that was almost my second question there. Um, You're having fun with this, obviously, but you're also quite serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, in the introduction to the book, I quote Marx's great line about Hegel, that historical events and personages appear twice, so to speak. The first time is tragedy. The second time is farce. And I try to do something like that with the book. Like there are absolutely farcical elements of this book. I think it could be read as a satire of academic writing. I think it could be read as a satire of a certain kind of Marxist writing, but it it's also asking Marxists and people interested in political economy and people on the left to really think seriously about the role of animals, both in our imaginations and in our material worlds. The bestiary. Tell us about that history, where they came from, and what the cultural significance of, of it was. Well, the bestiary is a, is a medieval book. Uh, They were actually sometimes printed on paper, sometimes printed on animal skins. But there were sort of religious texts that were were quite beautiful, uh, quite erudite, often printed in gold. And they were medieval depictions of truths given by God, given by the Lord, that could be told and revealed through animal allegories. So they're catalogs of animals And as bestiaries develop through reading about animals, one comes to understand how to be a properly religious, 
God-fearing, state-fearing person. It's an antiquated form now. Um, and I think at a certain point in the 20th century, 21st century, it might just mean a collection of stories about animals. But certainly the history uh, has to do with the Catholic Church. So many bestiaries were written in Latin. They became more vernacular as Latin ceased to be the language of erudition in the 14th and 15th centuries. But it's sort of an antiquated form that I try to make a little bit modern. Uh, The first chapter in Marks for Cats is on the lion. And bestiary has the generic requirement that the first animal entry be a lion because the lion is the most regal being. Uh, It's funny you said catalog. I mean, it's just everywhere, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, along those lines, just picking two things at random from the book, you say the L in CLR James stands for Lionel. Then later on, you mentioned Mao translates as cat in Cantonese. (laughs) You really make a persuasive case here. I know you're a cat partisan, but would this work with any other animal? It's funny. I get asked that question quite often. And of course, what I was looking for in the archival sources, the book spans from about the ninth century common era to the present, was cats. I haven't done the archival work, but I could speculate based on uh, what I found looking for cats that it could be done with different animals. It would be a different book. I think it could be done with dogs. I think it could be done with horses. This book is a very Eurocentric book. It's very much focused on North America and Europe. Um, I think it could be done in a radically different way in Southeast Asia and East Asia. I mean, that's where these these animals come from. You know, they arrive in the European imagination through trading and through colonization and warring with different parties in the East. So I absolutely do. Um, but it would be a different book. It wouldn't be this book. But I, I, I hope that there's a method here that might be taken up. Dogs are almost entirely absent, you know, the other pole of the domestic animal spectrum. Although you do analyze Rousseau's thoughts. What was Rousseau's view of the cat v. dog question? Rousseau was a very committed cat partisan. He was also a very committed vegetarian. So uh, Rousseau believed that the cat's sort of idiosyncratic celebration of its own individuality and its refusal to be trained, to be obedient, to follow orders as a dog does, made it a test case for a human being's ability to live in a truly democratic, truly free state, because you have to live with radical difference and radical otherness. He thought that people who could not tolerate this aspect of feline independence um, had the potential to be, in his words, despotic. He engages with correspondence with philosophers, particularly John Boswell, um, a Scottish philosopher, where he says whether or not an individual likes cats is his test of character. And he believed that those who are more fond of dogs, who appreciated a dog's obedience, a dog's ability to be trained, would then favor a political system which tried to control and tame its citizenry. All right, let's um, take a couple of leaps, cat-like leaps through history here. (laughs) The medieval view of domestic cats as evil or Muslim, (laughs) associated with heretics, women, witches, Jews, philosophers, sex workers, Several times you cite uh, fevered fantasies of heretics kissing the hindquarters of cats. What was it about cats for um, the people in this period? This period, the sort of late late medieval period from about uh, 1150 through really the early modern ages, but the, the height of the cat heretic sexualized fantasy is probably from about 1250 to 1450. And it's not just cats. Um, this, is a, this is a moment where you look in the archives and you also find frogs and rabbits as what's called witches' familiars, these animals with which witches would convene and commune to bring the devil into a, a particular space and disrupt social order. I do read it as a kind of material metaphor for the need for an emergent feudal state, a feudal state that's deeply connected with and interwoven with the Catholic Church, to have categories of obedience and categories of potential for excommunication. And what you find in this period is that these states in many ways, they come to us in history as almost states of total control where 
the church, the state, and the ruler are sort of unified as one. But when you read through medieval history, you find that they're maroon communities, they're breakaway communities, they're heretical communities. I mean, in many ways, there are more of these types of communities than there are these unitary, Catholic, ruling, male, enfranchised bands of, of leaders. Why did the cat become associated with that? It's, it's, it's hard to say at a certain level. And I think what I try to do in the book is show that the association that is given in the in the medieval period in a way really continues and one of the things to go back to your question about could you do this with another animal i actually in my archival research did not see an animal whose meanings were as consistently maintained across different economic systems and different systems of statecraft and state organization as the cat it's not a it's not a perfect answer to your question it's more a, a, a sort of sense of saying what happens if we take the example or we take the incidents and show how it repeats. What are those transhistorical meetings? Could you flesh that out a bit? I started this book in the ninth century. I could have started this book had I been more erudite, which I'm not, in the Egyptian in the Egyptian period, uh, where cats are deities and they're cat massacres as Rome conquers and invades Egypt. Um, but these are sort of peripheral to my history. But Basically, by the, again, the 11th or 12th century, the cat, particularly the black cat, particularly the domestic cat, um, although domesticity has, of course, a different meaning in the 12th century as it does today, is associated with disorder, with an anti-state position, an anti-church position, an anti-authoritarian position. Those meanings maintain a certain fixity up through the early 20th century. And what I try to show in the book is that that fixity of meaning has, al has allowed different classes and different parties to join with the cat in their own or in its own revolutionary moment or revolutionary eruption. So for example, the French bourgeoisie in the 18th century was delighted with the cat and was very interested in being involved in that sense of a of an anti-state, anti-church sort of rebellious attack on the aristocracy, on the nobility. Those meanings change by the 18th century. They change by the 19th century. But the sense of a sort of oppositional relationship to whatever power is in place does seem to endure, not only century after century, but mode of production after mode of production. Cats are notoriously stubborn and untrainable. You just, you really can't change a cat's behavior very much. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And and there's, you know, uh, I'm not a biologist, but there is a, a rumor or a sort of a hypothesis that cats are one of the few animals that domesticated themselves. I don't know if that's true. I sort of play with it in the book. I'm not interested in the fixity of that proposition, but I do think it's a fun fantasy to have. Yeah, say a bit more about that. Well, that they, that they, unlike horses, unlike dogs, unlike cattle, that they made the decision to join human communities more so than that they were trained or bred into joining human communities. I mean, again, I don't know, I don't know the scientific validity of that, but it, it is a sort of feline rumor that I think is a fun proposition to have in the background of a study that looks at century after century of cats as potential economic agents and economic disruptors. I'm speaking with Lee Claire LaBerge, author of Marks for Cats, a radical bestiary just out from Duke University Press. A theme that appears several times in the book uh, is an opposition between tigers and lions. Mm -hmm. What do they symbolize, respectively? The lion is, of course, uh, as I mentioned in the bestiary discussion, the lion is the most regal animal. If you want a contemporary example of that, you can look at the current British royal family, whose insignia is still completely leonine um, and has been for about a thousand years. So the lion has a sort of, it has a sort of imperiousness. It has a regality. Um, it also has a religiousness to it. You know, Christ was portrayed as a lion and a lion was portrayed as Christ. This is obviously medieval. The sense of appreciation for the lion's regal being, uh, its wisdom, its fierceness, 
I think that is a consistent definition, certainly through the end of the 19th century, whereby particularly during the French Revolution, tigers, perhaps because they have black stripes on them, animals, uh, felines in particular that had black on them, uh, whether it be a panther, an ocelot, were judged as fierce without reason, right? So we begin to also see the the sort of early modern racial imagination emerging in discussions of felines and cats. But the tiger during the French Revolution, and particularly the sort of cousin to the French Revolution, which is the Haitian Revolution, was consistently used as a metaphor of absolute depravity, particularly from English and German onlookers, the sort of two countries who were famous for never having had a bourgeois revolution. But they looked to France and the example of the French Revolution and in people like uh, Jean-Paul Marat or Maximilien Robespierre, the metaphor for the depravity of the terror of the radicality of the French Revolution was a language of tigers. Um, And then when France looked to Haiti, as Haiti began its own revolution against French imperial domination, it then saw Haiti as uh, a revolution of tigers. So I try to play with this throughout the book. Uh, This is all taking place in the 18th century where you have the beginning of natural history, uh, something like Buffon's natural history, uh, which is sort of a modern equivalent to a bestiary, but which catalogs all animals, um, in addition to describing their physical properties, describes their moral properties. And the lion is upheld, again, there as a sort of shining example of a regal beast, while the tiger is uh, as strong and as fierce as the lion, but without any regal association. I mean, just sort of pure moral depravity. In The Mask of Anarchy, Shelley appropriates the lion for revolutionary purposes, rise like lions after slumber, in unvanquishable number. Ye are many, they are few. That's reversing a well-established hierarchy. There's a sense, I think, in the Romantic movement, um, someone like Shelley, uh, but also uh, the anti-slavery movement in the United States, someone like Frederick Douglass, of trying to reclaim the lion and make it a more egalitarian animal, someone whose uh, power can be used not just in support of the state, but in opposition to it. I'm not sure how well that effort turned out. Uh, The radical movements of the late 19th and and early to mid 20th century, something like the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, or the Black Panthers um, in the 1960s in the United States, went back to the black cat as symbols of uh, overcoming the state and revolutionary overcoming in particular in a way that the lion I have not seen uh, repurposed as, although there were 19th and 18th century efforts. The idea of the tiger's leap, though, is uh, uh, sometimes a metaphor for either revolutionary act or thought. Yeah, the, the, the Benjaminian tiger sprung. This is a term that Walter Benjamin actually uses to describe Maximilian Robespierre the sort of radical of the of the Jacobins during the French Revolution. And then Benjamin takes this term that um, emerges in his writing in a discussion of Robespierre and uses it as a conceptual metaphor for the work that the radical historian must do, right? That she must leap into the past to find a new a new history. And with the the archival evidence, with the sort of um, new knowledges that the tiger sprung brings you to, you can begin to reorder the present and soon the future. So I make a lot of that, uh, make a lot out of that metaphor that Benjamin provides. I think it's in the philosophy, thesis of the philosophy of history. Um, And he introduces it at the same time, actually, he introduces it in 1938. And interestingly, you know, he goes to Moscow, Trotsky had just left Moscow. Trotsky starts using the, the idea of the panther sprung, the panther's leap, for the way that capitalist imperialism works. And then in 1940, C.L.R. James also uses the phrase the tiger's leap in English or tigerish leaps. So these all emerge at almost the same time historically, but I don't think they have knowledge of each other. Sort of an interesting Benjaminian convergence. You write some about a cat comrade dialectic. Now, cats are notoriously stubborn, individualistic, uh, not pack animals in any sense. That, that seems like opposite features of what you want in a comrade. So how do these things relate? How does this, what is this dialectic all about? I think this is the maybe most speculative part of the book because 
one of the things that I've I found in the book, particularly from about the 1890s on, and of course this also has to do with with technologies of photography and and different kinds of archival creation, but Marxists, socialists are very fond of their cats. In the book, I talk about Lenin's love of cats, Rosa Luxemburg's love of cats. I talk about CLR James's wife, uh, also very fond of cats. If you are on social media today, you will see all kinds of Marxists and radicals posing with their cats. And I think, you know, if we want to go back to the old Rousseau line, that there's an appreciation by Marxists for the independence and the indifference and the sort of radical otherness of being that cats seem to inhabit, even while domesticated, even while living at a home, uh, even while living with humans. So I wonder about that in the book. What is it that Marxists appreciate about cats? But this is also the moment in which cats sort of become a metonym for all animals. And this is you know, we talked in the early part of the interview about the both tragic elements of the book and the farcical elements of the book. But this is a sort of real question that I have, which is, how is it that so many Marxist and political radicals can find such joy in their relationship with their own cats, but not develop a larger animal politics and not conceive of a sort of interspecies solidarity. I don't know what that would look like. This is, again, quite speculative. But clearly, there's an attachment that leftists have to their own animals, which is not extrapolated into a larger animal politics or a larger interspecies politics. Uh, in the book, the most tragic figure to inhabit this this tension, this doesn't yet become a dialectic, I would say it's a tension, is Rosa Luxemburg who was deeply fond of her cat Mimi and deeply fond of the animals that she met in the prison workyard where she was imprisoned in Berlin during World War I, but couldn't imagine animals as any more than sort of affective connections. Uh, couldn't imagine animals as really being part of a revolution that she envisioned. And I do think, you know, in an age of climate change, in an age of zoonotic pandemics, the time really has come for leftists to be able to articulate an interspecies politics. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So your theme of cross-species solidarity, humans should stop exploiting animals. But cats are carnivores, ruthless predators who toy with their prey. I mean, Christopher Smart thought that was an act of mercy. One mouse in seven escapes by his dallying. But um, that's a rather generous uh, interpretation compared to the prey play I've seen with cats. It seems like, you know, they kill, what, three billion birds a year just in the U.S. alone? Mm -hmm. uh, now, you barely mentioned this angle of catdom, but it seems like one of their more um, prominent aspects. How do you reconcile your love for these top predators with your aversion to meat-eating and your call for this uh, different relationship with the animals? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I think it's a good question. And I would say that one of the things that I try to do in the book that remains at the level of sort of metonym or metaphor is to not disturb cats as these these pagan dwellers alongside humans, right? To not push into or to not explore these, you know, as you rightly point out, really difficult elements of what cats do to an environment. Now, I think that does open up a larger question and that question is, what do we do with the human pet industrial complex? The reason that cats kill so many birds is that there's so many cats. The reason that cats and dogs eat so much meat from the pet food industry is that animals have been domesticated and now have to be fed. And Again, like this is a moment where I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, I'm not an earth scientist, but the human production and reproduction of domesticated animals is a social and environmental and climate disaster. And cats are absolutely part of that. I don't know what the solution is. And this is why I say it's a speculative element of the book. Um, but it is really asking, it is really me asking Marxists, eco-Marxists, eco-socialists to think about what would a different relationship with 
with animals be? And that would be both animals that we eat, but also animals that we live with and love who then eat other animals in the case of cats, to get back to your question. Yeah, it made me wonder if there was some kind of uh, relationship of identifying with them as some kind of dark identification uh, with their <laughs> disturbing and forbidden behaviors. Oh, I think there absolutely is. There absolutely has to be. I mean, I think that's the sort of the almost the residual pagan element of them that remains. I think that's that's absolutely true. But then let's explore it and let's call it that and let's identify it, you know. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, finally, um, you said before I pressed the record button that uh, you um, had a cat you loved who died some years ago and you're not planning on getting another. Have you given up on cats as pets? Yeah, it's less that I think I've given up on cats as pets than I've given up on pets as a category that I want to be involved with. And, you know, one of the things that I think any genuine Marxism does is it, it asks us to look at structural relationships first and foremost, and less so look at individual relationships as exceptional to structural relationships. And so I think in the in the example of a cat ownership for me personally, I had a cat for years. I grew up with animals. I absolutely loved him. The book is dedicated in part to him. But, you know, this this individual emotional cathexis that people have to their pets while they disregard this larger structural relationship of what domesticated animals and what industrial animals um, and what the pest, pet industrial complex does to the environment, to our politics, to uh, our planet. This to me has just, it's just become too problematic, you know, and this, this sort of, I really do see it as a bourgeois sentimental attachment to an individual object at the expense of a larger structural consideration. Um, I do think that's what pet ownership is. I've certainly done it. I've certainly enjoyed it, but I can't imagine doing it now. That was Lee Claire LaBerge, a professor of English at Borough Manhattan Community College and author of Marx for Cats, a radical bestiary just out from Duke University Press. I worry about the political future of a tendency that says no more pets, but I'm very fond of this book and I need not agree with the author on everything. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Buried Republican visions, symbolic and explicit. A history of resistance, denied by bishops, lawyers, spies. And Grantham hugely petty, riding on her crocodile. Cross-teaming London Bridge, paved with blood and gold. Rise like lions, shake. Their leisure. Many a grotto meant for rest holds a pirate for a guest. Soft the scene, so born for joy. Oh, curse the tyrants that destroy. That was some of the Mekon's Robin Hood, which borrows Shelley's Rise Like Lions lyric. Next, understanding capitalism in order to transform it. Michael Zweig is a professor emeritus of economics at Stony Brook University on Long Island, where he ran the Center for the Study of Working Class Life for many years. His book, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, was published by Cornell University Press in 2011. He's now out with Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, published by PM Press. It was written for the many new activists coming to politics these days as a guide to understanding capitalism in all its diabolical forms. Michael will be at the Howard Zinn Book Fair, City College of San Francisco's Mission Campus, on Saturday, December 3rd at 2.30 p.m. Michael Zweig. You have been, for many decades now, writing about class, specifically the working class, and not to the exclusion of other categories like race and gender, which I want to talk about in a moment. But let's talk first about your understanding of class. What are the fundamental class divisions in this country, and how do you define and measure them? We often talk about class in the United States in terms of income or wealth. There's a broad middle class, and then there's there's a fringe of rich people and a fringe of poor people at the bottom, but most people are middle class, and it's defined in terms of income or wealth or sometimes education. 
I think that those things are all uh, important, but they don't really describe the essence of what class relations are. To me, class is a question of power, not income or wealth. Class is a question of power, particularly in economic relations. Power is a relationship. You can't have power unless someone else doesn't. You don't have power without regard or without reference to the people over whom you do have power. And those people are relatively powerless because they're working under your direction and your uh, control. The working class are people working in uh, all different kinds of occupations who basically have very little control over the pace or the content of their work. They just have a job. They go to work. They do their job under more or less supervision. And then they go home or go to another job. And the people who have control and power over them are those executives and the boards of directors of the corporations they work with whose orders are then brought down to that workforce through a middle section of management and uh, supervisory personnel in the business. So that's really who I think of as the working class. Often we think in those terms of, of just heavy industry, you know, the lunch bucket workers that are going through the factory gates. Those are certainly part of the working class, but so are call center workers. So are home health aides. So are the emergency medical technicians. So the working class is really a very broad spectrum of people all sharing this characteristic of being subordinate to the power of, of capital and, and their representatives. Uh, in management. I went to the U.S. Department of Labor data, and they keep track of uh, occupations, how many people are in different occupations. And I think that those occupations are the best sort of proxy that we have for power. There's no direct measure for power. But I think it's safe to say that if you're a home health care worker, you don't have a whole lot of power over your work. Now, you have skills, but that's a different thing. There's well over 700 occupational categories and for each one, I thought, is this a working class job? Is this a middle class job? Is this a corporate super elite capitalist class job? And just added them up and put a big spreadsheet together with all those occupations and uh, came up with an accounting that's pretty consistent over the last 40 years that I've been doing this that indicates that the working class is something like 62% of the labor force. And the middle class is something like 36%, and the capitalists, the senior executives and boards of directors are something like 2% of the uh, working population. So that's why I think that the working class is the majority of the population. So that's the way I look at class and the way that I look at its relationship uh, in power between the working class and the capitalist class with the middle class that's kind of in between. You talked some about the middle class, um, I guess the term that people use a lot now, professional managerial class following the Ehrenreichs. How does your conception of the middle class overlap with the PMC? To me, the middle class is in the middle of labor and capital. That's what it's in the middle of. It's not in the middle of an income distribution, although many are, but that's not the point. So you have three basic categories of work that are within this middle class. There is a professional middle class of professional people, lawyers, doctors, university professors. That is part of the middle class. But there are also small business owners. And there are also supervisors and managers in business who are not really part of the professional middle class that you might think of as more intellectually oriented or academic in their thinking and their work. To me, the, the middle class is quite a bit broader than the professional middle class and includes these other categories of work, the small business owners, of which there are many millions, and the uh, managerial uh, and supervisory personnel in uh, the corporations and in the businesses in this country. That middle class um, is politically problematic in some sense. A lot of them identify upwards, right, with the interests of the upper classes. Well, it depends who they are. You know, uh, what I found is that this middle class is caught between labor and capital, and they do often identify uh, with the interests of capital in the way of trying to enhance individual liberties and individual initiative free from government regulation and those kinds of things. Those elements or those people in the middle class who are most closely associated with workers haven't done very well, as workers have not done very well over the last 40, 50 years. Those people in the middle class who are most closely associated with capital have done rather well. Corporate law firm lawyers, they're cleaning up 
But lawyers who uh, basically are in small towns or in working class neighborhoods and hang up a shingle as a lawyer handling divorces and, and handling uh, property transfers and all those kinds of small items, they're really suffering uh, because their constituency is suffering. People who are foremen in a shop, that's a middle class job in the sense that it's a managerial job that supervises labor on behalf of capital, often drawn out of the working class and promoted out of the shop floor into those positions. People who are at that level of the managerial spectrum aren't doing very well because the people they supervise and that they're immediately in contact with aren't doing very well. But if you go to the top levels of management in these corporations, those people tend to be doing very, very well. This middle class caught between labor and capital, depending on where they're really oriented, if they're oriented towards labor, they're going to get hit hard. And they then are more af affiliated with the interests of workers to defend working class rights and build alliances between unions, let's say, that are striking or unions that are organizing, building alliance with the local small businesses. That's a very important possibility, and the unions do that. If you're at the other end, it's not so easy to build those alliances with labor to the highest levels of middle-class supervisors uh, or doctors or professional people because they're uh, much more closely aligned with uh, the corporate elites and the, and the ruling class in this country. Okay, now let's talk some about um, divisions within the uh, the working class, racial and ethnic. Let's just talk about first just the composition, and then we can talk about the political implications of it. In this country, the lexicon for the working class often is limited just to white people, and especially white men. That's, I think, a very wrong and politically dangerous reduction. The working class in this country, that is people who go to work, do their jobs, go home or go to another job, work under more or less close supervision. Actually, white men is a minority of those people. White people are a bare majority because black workers are also workers. Women workers are also workers. And often, way too often, in the political discussions and the social analysis that takes place in this country, a black worker is first and foremost seen as black. And the fact that that person is a worker is essentially dismissed as uninteresting. A white worker is seen principally as a worker, particularly the men. Women are often seen as women and are supposed to be driven only by issues that are important to women, whether it's reproductive rights or equal pay or whatever uh, the particular issues that women workers are mobilized around and are affected by. That's true. But they are also workers. And so if we talk about a working class, we're talking about a multiracial, multiethnic, multigendered collection of people who are in the same relationship to capital. And that same relationship is what the ruling class and what the capitalist class wants to divide so that people don't see that commonality. And that's what I think is very important to understand, that, that race, class, and gender are all intertwined. And in particular, if you look at the history of this country, when we had slavery, everybody knows we had slavery in this country, but what we had was racial slavery. The fact that it was racial slavery was a deliberate choice on the part of the British colonial powers in the 17th century to divide the African and the English indentured labor population that was being brought to this country to do the work. And it rebelled, and the British divided and conquered. From the beginning in this country, race and class have had a very close intertwined relationship. You can't understand the one without the other. And in a different set of dynamics, the same is true of gender and uh, patriarchy and capitalism. So I think that when we think about the working class, we really need to think about this broader understanding. The other side of that is if you think about black population in this country, it is also divided by class in very, very serious ways. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s made an enormous difference in ending the traditional legal uh, Jim Crow. And we do have a black president in our history now. We do have black people on the Supreme Court. We do have black people in senior cabinet positions in this country, CEOs of major corporations, governors, all that is true. 
what that means is that within the black population, the civil rights movement was able to propel up into the corporate elites certain sections of the black population. But if you look at what happened to most black people, most black workers, they didn't benefit that much from that civil rights movement. And they are still sub suppressed and still subject to racial discrimination within the working class positions. So it's just not uh, so simple as to say, well, here's workers and over here are black people and over here are women and over there are Hispanics or Latinx. It's just not quite that simple. And what I'm trying to get at in this book is exactly to unpack those relationships so that we can challenge the injuries and the divisions of capitalism and bring those divisions back together into a common political force that can challenge the capitalist system that's really suppressing, bothering everybody who's in these social movements. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm speaking with Michael Zweig, author of Class, Race, and Gender, just out from PM Press. Non-white people suffer injuries specific to their racial or ethnic status. Women suffer injuries specific to their um, gender status. But there are people who say, and not all of them are white men, but there are people who say that we should overlook those fissures of race and gender to promote class unity. What do you say to that? I say that that's really one-sided and wrong. In the same way that it's one-sided and wrong to say, which is often said in the Democratic Party in particular, well, who cares about white, white men? You know, we're just going to go ahead and build a political movement that's based on becoming a minority-majority country. That's also completely one-sided and leads to a dead end. What we need to do is to have a common, united labor movement that confronts capital, but also in confronting capital, not just at work, but also in its attempts to impose racial injustice. That has to be challenged. And white workers have to be brought into that challenge. White workers do not benefit, certainly in the long term, from racial suppression of black people. If you look at this country, where is the biggest suppression of African-American population in voting rights issues and all the rest? It's in states that have right-to-work laws. It's in states that have the lowest levels of Medicaid coverage for all workers, not just uh, poor blacks, but also white workers. All these things indicate that where racial suppression is intense, the suppression of working people of all colors is also intense. If you have a united working class movement, it has to take up issues of racial equality. It has to take up questions of women's rights, LGBTQ rights, all of those issues that need to be brought into a common front against the basic power of capital and the rising threat of fascism that we have in this country right now. One thing you write some about is confronting the culture of capitalist individualism, which is something that's been injected into our heads since the day we were born. How do we get people to think um, outside of that uh, competitive individualistic model? By looking at the examples of the ways in which we can put limits on that individualism. I don't think there's anything wrong with looking after yourself and putting yourself, your self-interests at the forefront of your thinking. I give two examples in the book. One, if you're flying, when you sit down uh, before the plane takes off, they come with an announcement about what to do, the safety, where are the exit doors. And one of the pieces of that is when the oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first before you, go, you help the person next to you. You have to look after yourself first in order to help somebody else. You know, I've been in a volunteer firefighter for over 30 years. And in our training, one of the first things that we learn is when you roll up to a scene, your first obligation is to your own safety. Before you can help anybody leaning out a window of a burning building saying, save me, save me, you have to be safe yourself so that you can do the work of saving other people. That says to me, that the way to understand self-interest and individualism is to understand it as securing your own capacity to be of service and to be helpful to the society around you and other people. What capitalism teaches, and too often is, is imposed on people, is the idea that your obligation is to yourself only, self-interest full stop. And somehow or other, if everybody only looks after their own self-interest, the greater good will happen automatically the way Adam Smith promised that it would. Well, it doesn't. The way to 
challenge this idea of me, myself, and I, individualism full stop, is to show, A, how in practice we don't do that. For example, flying in airplanes or training in a fire service. No, you, you, you learn in those circumstances that your own self-interest is connected to a larger cause or a larger purpose. And the same thing is true in social movements. You get involved in a social movement and you're doing individual work. You're doing something that you can do, that you can contribute, but you're part of something larger. And I think that the way in which we break down the ideology of, of individualism and self-promotion is to put it in that kind of context, both in the movements that we build, but also in the regular lives that we lead and, and, and what we all do. You've got some uh, stuff on religion. As we were saying before I pressed the record button, we were both used to be you know, fairly godless leftists, and we both softened on this question. Uh, how do you see the role of religion in uh, progressive political movements? Religion is part of the social structure that we all grow up in, as is the political arrangements and uh, the cultural, other cultural arrangements. All these different elements of social existence are infused by class conflict. Bob Dylan has this tune, you got to serve somebody. And then there's also, you know, which side are you on? There are many ways to express this idea that in religious circles and in religious practice, there is also this question of which side are you on? Or you got to serve somebody. Who are you serving? Are you serving capital or are you serving labor? Are you serving the cause of suppression of rights and, and, and dignity, or are you serving the cause of promoting dignity, self-fulfillment, and progress in social justice? In religion, we often hear from, uh, you know, Marx, oh, it's the opium of the people. And Marx says that. But if you look more closely, that religion is the opium of the people comes after Marx describes what else religion is, which is it's the soul of a soulless world. It's the bomb and the, what is giving hope in, to a hopeless people. Religion is a complicated thing, and people go to it for various different reasons. But in the, the tradition of liberation theology, for example, in other traditions in uh, religious practice across the denominations, across the religious types, there is an idea that you have to confront not just poverty and not just be charitable, but you have to actually confront the, the causes of that poverty, the causes of that de uh, suffering. And that is what liberation theology was all about and is all about. It's what uh, in the Poor People's Campaign, which is the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. What Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris leading that uh, movement are saying is we have to confront the social structures that generate these evils that we're dealing with. That kind of interpretation of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, all those religious traditions have progressive tendencies in them and progressive expressions, and they have reactionary expressions and reactionary tendencies. Which ones are the dominant one at any given moment in any particular religion or any particular community depends upon how those tenets of religion are expressed in political practice. So in a lot of communities where liberation theology or where structural theology has a place, you'll find that uh, religious leaders are on the side of social justice and mobilize around it, as they did in the 1980s around El Salvador and the, or anti-apartheid movements. We need to pay attention to that those of us who are secular leftists, to have some dialogue, not that we can convince Christians what Christianity is or Judaism what Judaism is, because we are atheistic people. I am an atheist. But that doesn't mean that I can't engage in a discussion and recognize and respect religious people who are in a common struggle with me and with the labor movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and all the other movements for a progressive and, and positive direction for the society. And finally, the word socialism has re-entered the U.S. political vocabulary after a long absence. Uh, what do you make of this? Bernie Sanders was principally responsible for that uh, development, and I think it's a positive one. Now, 
the word socialism has a lot of different connotations and practical meanings since the middle of the 19th century. To me, what socialism means is bringing working class people into positions of power and authority. A socialist movement is a movement that seeks to enhance the political capacity of the working class, taking it in a progressive direction. And by progressive, what I mean is anything that reduces suffering, anything that increases the material or intellectual or cultural capacity, organizational capacity of working people, that's all progressive. Socialism is about that kind of progressivism. Socialism is not just a political agenda. It can be thought of as a social system, as a way of organizing society. We don't have a a lot of experience in this country with actually having a socialist organization of society. That still remains to be developed. There is experience in other parts of the world, and it's a mixed experience. Some was positive, some was negative. In most countries uh, in the world, that socialist experiment or communist experiment didn't work out very well and was defeated. But to really unpack the lessons of socialism as a social system, uh, we need people who really have dug deeply into it, lived through it. And uh, I am not uh, you know, prepared to really discuss that set of problems because that's outside my experience. But socialism as a way of thinking, as a way of organizing a political agenda, that I think uh, we're ready to do. And more and more people, particularly young people, are interested in that. That was Michael Zweig, author of Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, just out from PM Press. A reminder, Michael will be at the Howard Zinn Book Fair, City College of San Francisco's Mission Campus, 1125 Valencia Street, Saturday, December 3rd at 2.30 p.m. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a track from an album that was released exactly 50 years ago, November 30th, 1973, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno's No Pussyfooting, a nicely feline title, too. Till next week, bye.